Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. It's been a big theme already of 2024, led by farmers across multiple countries, especially in Europe. There have been widespread protests aimed at a number of policies, bringing disruptions to cities, being hijacked by political movements and in some cases forcing change. What's going on here? Is it spreading across the globe? And are farmer protests going to be coming to Australia in a big way in 2024? Hello, I'm Warwick Long. It is great to be back with you on the Country Hour for another year. Thanks very much for joining us. Today, we're looking at farmer protests and I want to know if it's something you've been watching. Should we be watching closely if farmers are blocking highways, spraying effluent on buildings in another country? Does it highlight a growing anger in the farming class that we need to interpret here? They're the questions we'll ask today with guests in Australia. We'll also hear from international guests on this program later in the week because the reasons for these protests differ from country to country and we're going to go through some of that. But I want to know too if there's an overall united theme here. Is it farmers feeling that governments aren't acting in their best interests? Or is it dangerous to group them all together like that? In France, for example, no doubt you've seen the pictures. Manure being sprayed, highways being blocked, imported produce being destroyed and hay bales lining city streets. Here's audio of trucks dumping manure to block a major road. Farmers in France say they don't earn enough to make a living and are overwhelmed by regulatory standards. They want simpler and more lucrative administrative standards from the EU. No new pesticide bans and an end to ever-increasing diesel prices for tractors. They even drove sheep through major cities to try and enhance their argument. French farmers haven't been alone, though. In Germany, here's audios of farmers spraying manure across the front of buildings in Stuttgart in the heated protest. German farmers say they're protesting against increasing environmental standards and control, rising production costs and soaring administrative pressure. Basically, the burden on them to prove what they're doing to get a payment from their government or from the EU. In Austria, Romania and the Netherlands, there have been large-scale protests against higher taxes on them and the EU's Green Deal aimed at decarbonising the economy. Also there, protests about the increase of Ukraine agricultural products into the EU, which have been a major source of protest since the beginning of the war. More Ukrainian produce has been allowed to be sold in Europe as a way of supporting that country in its war effort, but it put downward pressure on prices affecting, well, what Romanian, Netherlands, Austrian, even uh, farmers in other countries have been able to earn. In Ireland, here's the Irish Farmers Association local president, Maurice Brady, addressing a local crowd at a protest about what they're calling for. What we're doing here tonight is we're sending a couple of messages we're in solidarity with our fellow EU farmers, as you've all seen on television in the last couple of weeks. The farmers in, the, in, in Germany and France and 
everywhere else, Poland are out demonstrating about EU policy and how it's impacting on them. And secondly, we're sending out a message to the EU, to the MEPs, to the Commission, to our own government and everybody else that we're not happy either with a lot of the EU policies that have been brought down upon us as well. There's far too much regulation, there's far too much red tape, and it's uh, been implemented by the local government here. There's overcomplicated environmental schemes, as you know. That's just leading to delay in payments, and in, in some cases, no payments at all. And what are the stakes here? Farmers, no matter what the country, where you go, particularly in Europe, particularly in their situation at the moment, are saying they're desperate. In Wales, Steve Evans is a dairy farmer. He says something needs to be done to bring change and it needs to happen fast. I don't want thanks for what I do. Uh, I chose this vocation, but what I do want is some fairness and equality within the uh, supply chain in terms of economics, because at the moment, you know, here's, here's my cows, busy eating away, producing tomorrow's milk, which I'll sell again at a loss. The message is loud and clear, you know, we're not going to be about unless the economics change fast um, you know farmers are going to be leaving agriculture in their droves because ultimately if the economics don't add up then we're gone then we're gone what do you make of the protests should we group them up look at the big picture of what's happening in farming at the moment. But there is concern that farmer protests are being hijacked by political groups and movements for their own personal gain. In Germany, the concern is that extreme far-right groups are using farmers to increase their popularity and are expected to perform well in local elections this year on the back of that wave of farmer protests, bringing them with them other policy platforms that are away from farming and are considered extreme on issues like immigration, for example. In France, far-right groups have been holding rallies in farmers' honour. That's calls for a Frexit at a farmer rally there at the moment, and it continues on and on. In New Zealand, away from Europe, the ACT New Zealand MPs recently won special exemption from New Zealand's parliament to wear dirty gumboots on the floor of the house. They say to pay respect and honour New Zealand's farmers. haven't been to too many dairy farmers' places where dirty gumboots were allowed inside, but it is an interesting ceremonial exemption that they won that they said will become an annual tradition. And in the UK, the leader of a new organisation, No Farmers, No Food, which was only created this year, has shot to popularity, was asked whether farmers were being used as political pawns on the BBC. Former farmer and communications professional, the man behind No Farmers, No Food, James Melville, is the person responding to the BBC's questions here. You know, some farmers have expressed a bit of concern that the, this, that the farming campaigns that we're seeing at the moment are being slightly hijacked by people who have other more political motives. I recognise those concerns, but that's not the motive. This is not a particular slant on politics. It's basically to support farmers because you know, I obviously passionately believe in the benefits to society of farmers on my own background. I'm doing it not for personal interest or political gain. I'm doing it to raise awareness of the issues that farmers are facing and ideally put some pressure on, on governments. You know, I'm, I'm connecting in because of this with a lot of farmers in different sectors within the industry and also influencers and, and people who are supporting various farming campaigns. 
This is wholeheartedly a force for good to try and raise the profile of farmers in the farming industry and all the other services around farming, like haulage and you know rural shops, um, farm markets, and so on. And it's not a particular slant of politics. You know, I don't have any affiliation with any political party. I take my opinions on an issue-by-issue issue basis. But I do want to see some positive change for the farming industry. And if this, if this X speed and campaigns that come off it contribute in a positive way to that and bring in people right across the political divide, then that's got to be a good thing. In some other European countries, we've seen farmer campaigns being hijacked, rather, by uh, political movements. Do you think there's a danger that that could happen in the UK? You know, I think there's always an attachment with political motives on various campaigns that fly. That cannot be prevented. But my objectives and the farmers that I'm speaking to, and that's who I'm concerned about, is about doing the right thing to boost awareness, public opinion, and make some change to help the livelihoods and networks of farmers. And if we can do that, that's great. That's that's my skin in the game here. It's not to get bogged down with a political slant. It's to fundamentally help our farmers. I've said before that what's happening in Europe is almost like a blue-collar rising. And I understand the concerns of the industries involved because they've been forgotten about by our, by our governments for far too long. A blue-collar rising, how he describes what is happening at the moment? What are you seeing where you are? And is this something that you think you will see in Australia, either this year or in other parts of the world? Michael he says, hi, Was Michael, as a young farmer here, it, it sounds like all these protests are aligned with high regulation, increases in costs, low profits, and farmers leaving the industry. And I feel it's the same issues here. Sean says, it's pretty bloody simple. I mean, simple, no farmers, no food. And at country levels in poverty, says Sean. Was, uh, thanks. Uh, welcome back from holiday. Thank you for that. The difference between uh, us is the farmers are valued in Europe, says John in Northern Victoria. These countries have experienced hunger. Australia hasn't, and so we aren't value. just valued, just criticised by urban dwellers. You can keep those texts coming. These protests are already seemingly having an impact. Last week, farmers won their first concessions from the EU after weeks of protests across those countries, as I mentioned. EU leaders will be asked to sign off on a European Commission proposal to delay a rule requiring farmers to set aside between 4 to 7% of their land as fallow as part of an effort to restore soil health and increase biodiversity. That rule now will come into effect, well, won't come into effect until 2025. Andrew Whitelaw is the co-founder of Episode 3, can join us to talk about that. Does this show the strength of farmer protests, Andrew Whitelaw? I think it's a combination of uh, different factors, uh, Warwick. Uh, not, not just necessarily uh, the pressure that farmers have applied. Uh, there's also a consumer element to this as well. Uh, the EU Commission has had this set aside for a long time. Uh, 4% of land effectively is set aside for unproductive purposes. And that is the sort of the, the, sort of the linchpin of the EU's uh, environmental uh, regulation, environmental policy. And so for this to be changed amended for, for this year, in fact, not next year, is, is pretty significant. Uh, but... It points to a number of things. One is the pressure of farmers. You know, farmers, like you said in the last couple of minutes, about complaining about things like the cost of inputs. We've seen fertilizer fuel prices go through the roof, probably higher in, the, in Europe than we've seen in Australia. And we've also seen a big influx of competing grains and horticultural products from Ukraine into Europe because less volume could go via the Black Sea. So at the same time, we're also seeing 
uh, food prices rise for the average consumer. And, and one thing to not forget about is the consumer has way more votes than farmers in Europe. And the fact that they are paying through the roof for their everyday produce, for their beers and whatnot, uh, adding an extra 4% uh, of cropping into the mix doesn't sound like much, but it's potential for, theoretically, you know, another 5 million tons of wheat, half a million to a million tons of canola. These are significant volumes. And having that volume coming into the market, you know, could have a, a lowering effect on food prices. So it's not just about the farmer pressure. It's also about politicians trying to get ahead of the cost of living crisis ahead of a June election. So I would be sort of wary to say this is all the farmers. The farmers getting the success, that is. I suppose more widely then, a lot of the farmer pressure and anger has been cost of living efforts on themselves, but also against, as you mentioned, and as the change here, uh, as part of the green policy to uh, decarbonise the economy across Europe. A lot of the efforts in Europe to decarbonise have gone further than what we have seen in Australia to date from an Australian government. So is this a theme that you think will follow to Australia in terms of more protests here as uh, our own government tries to decarbonise in the future? Look, Europe, Europe has always been way ahead of Australia. We're in most of the world when it comes to environmental regulation. It just has been. We're probably, they're probably 10 to 15 years ahead. And like I've said for a long time, a lot of the bureaucracy and a lot of regulation will come to Australia. We're starting to see that with things like the ISCC on canola and sustainable barley. But we're still way behind. I think, though, will we see protests in Australia? You know, I hear a lot of people talking about it. Uh, no one's actually really done it. I would be wary, though, uh, in a culture like Australia to necessarily do these type of protests because we saw in 2019 when vegan protesters shut down Melbourne, it didn't get them the sympathy they expected. In fact, it turned around and people were very angry that they got, you know, were late for work, etc., had to miss things because of vegan protesters shutting down the roads. So we've got to find a middle ground of getting what we want. So do you think and, uh, Australians don't like the, the sort of city shutting down protests a la what we've seen in Europe, particularly from, say, French farmers? Well, the French are used to protesting. It's been a profession of theirs for hundreds of years. Uh, so it's not something new to, to the French. You know, I used to work buying a lot of agricultural products from France and protests were a very regular thing, whether it was truck drivers, dock workers or farmers. In Australia, we're not used to that type of direct action. I'm not sure how it would go ahead. I think probably the best option is, is lobbying and, and seeing what, they can, uh, what, what we can do to elicit change when, when things aren't going our way. And then direct action as the, as the final resort. And I think that's where farmers in Europe are seeing direct action as being the, sort of the, 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 the only option they've got left. Uh, Andrew Whitelaw, thanks for your time. Anytime, Mark. Andrew Whitelaw there from Episode 3 joining you on The Country Air. It's 21 past 12. We're looking at farmer protests around the world and also looking at whether it is something that you will see in Australia. I would love your views on it. You can always send us a text or give us a call, 1300 977 to call us. Jeff from Jam Jarrett says, I totally support global farmers. Australian farmers are also under threat of increasing regulations and the obsession with green energy. There are not enough farmer votes to counter the city votes, so we just get ignored.
adds Jeff. You can keep those texts coming, 0467842722. There's a lot to this. I'm interested in your thoughts as we move through. Let's bring in uh, David J. Hinkie, who's president of National Farmers Federation, who can join you now to talk about this. David J. Hinkie, is 2024 the year of the farmer protest? Well, I think it's, it's definitely the year when agriculture is standing up to be counted, both at the political level with the amount of noise and frustration that we're hearing, but also, yes, I think that farmers are now getting more attuned that they need to actually um, speak up as well because it's these farmer-based movements, these farmer-based uh, expressions of that frustration that both capture that consumer side of things, and as you've noted by both uh, the interviews and also the texts you've been getting, we are in the minority as far as people who vote, but we've got to get the majority to understand our frustration and hopefully get them to empathise with us, and that's when we can really start making some change. And I do believe this is the year when food prices, the cost of living, the fact that um, we as agriculture have got a lot of regulation on us, that we've got to express that and explain that to the wider population so that they can join our cause and make some significant changes to reduce these burdens. There have been protests in Australia before. There's been some this year in the Riverland from wine producers. Here's a little of that. Savagagas started a bit of a protest to show awareness in the industry. I'm only young, I'm still 25, and, well, if the industry collapses, I collapse, really. This is all I know, and this is what I love doing, and I want to keep doing it, but at these prices, we can't keep doing it. They are protesters from the wine industry. President of the NFF, David Johinke, is with you. Is the fact that Australia is such a big country, and there are so few farmers, one of the reasons we don't see protests to the scale that you may see in Europe? It's, it's too hard to get you all together? Uh even just from my experience, to better drive my tractor to a capital city to make a, make a noise would be pretty hard. And I agree with Andrew's comments too that in Australian culture, um, we need the population to get behind us to really make sure that they understand what the impact is before we can protest because um, if we frustrate a commuter going to or from work, we don't want them to get angry at us. We want them to join us. So there's that nuance of... Um, when the time's right, yes, protesting is absolutely what we need to do. We just need to get that message across. And I think the general community is starting to hear that with the cost of living conversation. And, and that's the effect of some of the causes of these um, uh, be policies or even in economic environments that we're seeing, um, that that frustration is starting to build. So it's, it's more of a, for me, a question of if we continue down this pathway, a when question, not an if question. Does it help you, you're the leader of the Australian Farm Lobby, does it help you when you see farmers in other countries um, angry and, and protesting over issues that relate to here as well? Or does it make things harder if, if people either disagree or agree? Oh, I think it helps. I reckon anybody, any farmer who speaks up on their social media or gives me a call or takes some direct action actually helps because that gives us evidence that the frustration's there and it's real. Because it's one thing for me to go in and slap my hand on a desk and say, you better start changing things because we're angry. It's another thing when the whole agriculture community gets behind the causes and, and all of our agricultural lobby groups, this is what we do. But to actually get the community and the farmers especially involved and get that grassroots activated, that gives me and, and us more impetus to say, you've got to change the direction, the current trajectory you're on or the, the current uh, narrative that's being presented is going to hurt you, is going to hurt the consumers, is going to really set agriculture back. But 
One thing that's a little bit different to us compared to Europe is the fact that we don't rely on government to the same extent those farmers do. Um, we have got a, a very much an abundance of food, even though we do import food as a whole. As far as the, the calorie output, we're, we're pretty secure and we've got this very strong um, sovereign stability in, in our country as well. So not saying, once again, that uh, that this is not a canary in the, in the coal mine. We have to look at what's happening overseas because that's the same legislation that tends to, to bleed into our system. It's our responsibility to speak up, explain why it's either a good or a bad policy and learn from what's happening overseas. A lot of these protests are now being connect, connected to far-right groups, um, some, some extreme groups in some of the countries that, are, that we mentioned earlier. Do you worry about your political campaigns ever being hijacked by political parties or does, does that help you get something done? Uh, look, as far as political parties go, they've all got to have a policy on the table before we want to talk to them because, quite frankly, it's one thing for them to, to grandstand and make promises. It's actually for us then to understand what, what the heck they stand for and what their values are because that gives you a true indication of are they a good, um, a good representative of both what we need and then also a way forward. So, yes, I am always concerned and always wary of anybody who, who um, gives you praise or wants to join you because... Usually, there's another motive behind if we're if you're not careful. So, for yet, yes, I'm always on the radar for that. We always have to try to be pure in what we need out of uh, any of our asks. But once again, it's that frustration from farmers, it's that voice from farmers that I constantly hear, and that's what we try to always put forward as the evidence base of why we stand for an issue or a reason why we need policy to change. David Jahinke is with you, the president of the NFF. I want to play this to you, David Jahinke. The federal government yesterday revealed they're going to introduce laws that will set fuel efficiency standards for new vehicles sold in Australia. Australia and Russia, the only developed countries which don't have fuel standards like Europe and the United States uh, under the new law. All new cars must reduce their carbon emissions by 2028 or manufacturers will face a penalty. But the opposition accused the government of being heavy-handed and saying it will drive utes off Australian roads. Here's Federal Transport Minister Catherine King talking to ABC's AM this morning. By 2028, we should see that drivers are paying a lot less for their petrol because we will have more efficient cars in our market. $1,000 uh, on average per car per year is the modelling that we have done, the savings that are there for consumers. Uh, we know that, and, and it's not just about fuel savings, but they are the immediate cost of living uh, relief uh, for people in terms of these efficiency standards. But it also does a few other things. Obviously, it's good for the environment. But it's also really good for human health. We know that there are significant impacts, significant respiratory diseases that comes from having cars that are higher emitting. And so reducing that's good for that. It's also really good for fuel security because it actually reduces uh, the country's reliance on uh, a number of cars that we have that are using more petrol than we really should be using because they're not as efficient as they could be. Do any of the top 10 selling models on the market in Australia at the moment meet this new standard? And really what this is about is a across the entire fleet that a manufacturer has. And so what this focuses on is saying to those manufacturers, when you're making decisions about what cars you will bring to the Australian market, and again, that's whether they are internal combustion engine cars, diesel cars, uh, hybrid or electric vehicles, across your entire fleet, you need to meet these targets. And so uh, that's... You know, China has standards, Japan has standards, New Zealand, US, EU. Uh, we're one of the few countries that doesn't alongside Russia and that our market's not prioritised for those most efficient vehicles. 
That is Catherine King speaking on AM this morning. David Jahinki, how's a change in fuel efficient standards going to affect farmers? Well, there's two questions here. There's fuel efficiency and emission standards. Obviously, we want to make sure that we, we are complying to um, trying to reduce uh, the pollution that we, we create as a nation. But what we don't want is uh, a, a handbrake being put onto our ability to run our businesses. So if there's a comparable vehicle that has comparable um, power output at a comparable price, let's have a chat about it. But at the moment, it was that question of, is there an alternative on the market at the same price? That's where our concern is. We don't want to be hamstrung by this legislation coming in. Um, and we haven't seen necessarily any rock-solid alternatives. Saying that, though, too, we, we do express that we, we have to make changes within our country, but we can't do it at a more um, expensive way of running our businesses and, and taking away the most important tools. So we're, we're following this one intensely. We're talking to different um, manufacturers. We're talking to the automotive industry of what is actually the art of achievable in this um, scenario without taking away that most important vehicle on the farm. So broadly, are you for or against this policy change? If we can get alternative vehicles at the same price, we're for it. If we can't, we've, we've got to have either an extended bleeding time or something to change to make it um, more uh, applicable to agriculture. And, and just before you go, David Johinke, according to the department, some of the sheep stranded on the live export boat in Western Australia have died across the weekend. That's not a good look for the industry, is it? Well, I'm pretty sure that I might have lost one or two sheep in my paddock as well, but I didn't get that reported. Um, yes, obviously we're very concerned about the welfare of the sheep. We want to make sure that they are in pristine condition and we're told by the, the chief vet officer in Australia that they are in that condition. There is always going to be losses, be it in paddock um, or on, on any movement of animals. Um, but can I just reassure all listeners in, in Australia itself that we are keeping a very close look at this and there is always going to be in any population of something that's alive um, a, a loss and we, we, we're trying to keep that to a minimum and I'm constantly told that these sheep are in excellent condition and this is just a normal mortality rate. Well, there was talk that some of these sheep might be brought to Victoria or South Australia for processing. Do you know if those discussions are ongoing? No, they absolutely are ongoing. We've basically getting um, updates basically twice a day on the status. There is a lot of legal um, ramifications that we have to wade through to make sure that we're getting everything spot on, but we are focused on making sure these animals are treated um, appropriately and potentially there might be some process um, in, in Australia. We're not necessarily sure where, um, and then potentially the rest might be still exported. We're still waiting for the go-ahead. We just know and understand that um, there's some pretty heavy work that's being done across the board. We're supporting the Department of Ag through those um, decisions because this is setting the precedent of what this trade can do. And if we're done right and the sheep are once again and cattle offloaded or, or exported in an appropriate manner, it shows that this is a legitimate trade and we're making sure we're doing everything we can to ensure that happens. Is there room in Victorian abattoirs to process a boatload of sheep like that? Well, I doubt that the whole boatload will ever get processed in Victoria in that sense of the matter. But, um, yes, that's one of the big issues at the moment we have is in the supply chain actually getting um, slots in. Um, and for us, it's not necessarily that they've got to come off the boat and be slaughtered or um, processed straight away. There would be a time frame noting that um, you've got to shift them around here as well. But, yeah, I'm not sure. Where I, the end of the conversation is I'm not sure exactly what the scenario is, but we're going to have a... I'm going to guarantee that there will be a resolution to this before the week's out. And once again, we've been working very close with the department on that. A lot to follow from here. David Jahinke, I've taken a lot of your time. Thanks very much for joining us. 
Cheers, mate. David Johinky there, President of the National Farmers Federation, joining you on the program. We can see your texts coming in. I'll get to some of those in a moment. Right now, though, I am late for rural news, so let's go there right away, uh, where this topic is still rather hot. Emma Field can tell us more. Good afternoon, Emma. G'day Warwick and welcome back. Let's start rural news in WA where the Federal Department of Agriculture has revealed several of the thousands of livestock stranded on a live export ship off the coast of Perth have died. The department has been trying to work out what to do with the 15,000 head of sheep and cattle since the MV Bahaji was ordered to return to Australia last month amid concerns about security in the Middle East. Several hundred cattle were offloaded from the ship on Friday night, but a decision to re-export the remaining animals back to the Middle East is still under review. Department Secretary Adam Fennessy has rejected suggestions they could be sent to a Victorian abattoir for processing, saying it's not the department's job to provide alternatives. The complexity of this situation is those alternatives are for the commercial exporter to put to us. Um, We, of course, uh, work through all the scenarios under which we may have to make decisions. We have to wait for and respond to requests from the commercial exporter before a decision is made. To the north now, where ex-cyclone Curley made its way southwards over the weekend from the Gulf of Carpentaria eastwards away from the Northern Territory. This brought heavy rain all the way down to the Barclay stations on the edge of the Queensland border. Andy Ralph, who is the ball runner at Manners Creek Station, says the weekend was wet. As that ex-cyclone Curley you know, went through Townsville and headed through, you know, Julia Creek got hammered, um, you know, Hewand and Richmond, all those. Man, I got a you know, fair drop during the middle of the week. We had a few days of, you know, 10, uh, 20, I think we had a 26 one day, uh, you know, early in the week. But then the Bureau did put out the severe weather warning on these about Saturday, uh, late Saturday evening. And uh, boy, it blew an absolute gale and down she came. So, But gee, that rain was going in the blowing sideways, mate. So I'm not sure how much she got in the gauge, but I tipped out 81 uh, at 6am Sunday morning. All the stations along the NT Queensland border, especially south of Camelwell, Austral Downs, Tobermory Station, they're our southern uh, neighbours, all would have got really good, really good rain. So I won't be running boards today, I don't think, mate. Won't get the vehicle won't be leaving the station. Meanwhile, on the Darling at Taboobra, they've had 70 millimetres so far this morning. It's an unexpected drop which has put huge smiles on the face of Samantha Maiden at Mount Gipps Station near Broken Hill in far west New South Wales. House tanks are filling, fresh pick is coming through and this is the best rain they've seen since being on the land. However, Samantha says if it doesn't stop soon, it might cause some damage. It started raining actually last night. It was actually very light around about 9 o'clock. And then I think around about midnight is when it started getting heavier, but it was actually probably about 3, 4 o'clock this morning that it just started bucketing. Well, it kind of looked very similar to the storm that hit Broken Hill a couple of years ago that destroyed roofs. Oh, right, so you had strong winds with the rain? Yeah, only like short bursts though. Yeah. (laughs) It's getting pretty close to needing sandbags if it doesn't stop soon. To Tamworth in northern New South Wales now, where 12,000 head of sheep are set for sale at the weekly sale yards. That's three times its weekly number. It comes after more than 100,000 head of sheep and lambs were sold at Wagga Wagga last week. Selling will get underway later this afternoon, but agent Andrew Bloomfield says dry weather is driving the sell-off. 
I think what's driving the numbers at the moment is it's a little bit unique that the New England's probably, the southern part of the New England and, and the Tamworth area are probably getting a bit dry and hot. And then the rest of the state's, you know, in pretty good stead, really, for rainfall. So we're probably just seeing a little influx here just due to local conditions, really. Yeah, through that sort of Urala walker district, you know. But And then, uh, obviously, there's sheep from around the Tamworth area as well coming in. But it seems to be a big number of stall lambs here today that's really pushed the numbers up. People, at this time of year, everyone sells their stall lambs. So, and, and probably that weather condition is pushing that just a bit harder at the moment. And finally, a small town in WA's northern goldfields is contemplating building a boundary fence to curb an influx of wayward cattle. Several years of drought in the Leonora region has driven cattle from nearby stations into the town site in search of food and water. In December, a local council worker was knocked unconscious when one of the cattle charged him when he was closing a gate at the Leonora sporting fields. Shire of Leonora CEO Ty Matson says the council is working with local pastoralists to find a solution. It's something the Shire is now working on with the, the pastoralists concerned to try and move them back out. But the issue is, is if, they, if we move them out straight away, then they're just going to walk all the way back in. So we've really got to look at some sort of more permanent solution, maybe a fence around town. And that wraps up Rural News. Thanks very much for that, Emma Field. Emma Field with Rural News for you this lunchtime. Some of your texts coming up. You can get them in if you'd like, 0467 842 722. Let's go to the Weather Bureau, though, to find out what's happening weather-wise around our state. Brian McPherson is a senior forecaster with the Bureau of Meteorology. Hi, Brian. Hi, Warwick. It was still hot this morning in Shepparton, I can tell you, but and then I had to turn on and listen to the change in Melbourne when I listened to the radio. It was terrible. How's it looking uh, this lunchtime? Has it cooled down for, for much of the state? Um, most of the state. So the change came through the southwest um, and uh, Melbourne area yesterday evening, um, and but it kind of stalled just before it got to Mildura up in the north. So um, the north had a very warm night indeed, so not very pleasant up there overnight. Uh, that change has finally got a little bit more mobile through the north now. It's, um, it's probably on its way to about Kyabram um, fairly soon, and but shouldn't move through the um, northeast until later this afternoon, though. So uh, I guess temperatures up there, though, are a little bit cooler today with that cloud cover, though. So how's it looking uh, today around the state and into tomorrow? Yeah, look, um, after yesterday's focus being on the heat um, and the risk of the fire dangers, today it's all about actually rainfall. And as that trough's moving into the eastern parts of the state, it's starting to tap into some tropical moisture that's being dragged down over the state by ex-tropical cyclone Kiralee. Uh, so we're starting to see showers and storms forming up over the northeast at the moment. Um, but it could get quite intense today for just for today, though. Um, we're seeing some fairly decent uh, numbers in our rainfall in the models uh, as that trough interacts with that tropical air. Uh, so the chance of some heavy falls with thunderstorms and we could see some uh, 24-hour falls across the um, state. Not much, maybe a mill or two in the south, uh, but up in the east ranges in the northeast, um, getting some isolated 10 to 40 mils uh, with showers and storms, but then some locally heavy falls, 50 to 70 mils and even higher. Uh, some of the models are peeing the odd 80 to 100 mil fall um, about oh. the ranges. Yeah, yeah this afternoon a, into this evening. Quite a big band, isn't there already from Corowa kind of down to Mount Hotham and a lot of you know various colours on the, on the radar showing. Oh, oh, oh. So how long will that rain stick around for? 
Yeah, look, it's short-lived at, at least. So the, the mechanisms driving it move out offshore tomorrow. So most of it should be well and truly done and dusted by about midnight, maybe the odd um, fall still hanging around in the northeast uh, into the early hours of tomorrow. And then after that, it's um, we're back under a ridge and it's... Uh, relatively dry southerlies uh, and a bit cooler across the whole of the state um, for the rest of the week, it's looking like. Yeah, so a settled settled week, really? Yeah, It is looking like a very settled week, similar to last week. Um, And, yeah, just things cooler than average, uh, not much in the way of rainfall, maybe the odd mill or two in the south, um, just with that southerly flow, fairly dry in the north um, once we get past um, today. And, yeah, just a, a fairly settled week again. Brilliant. Uh, anything then on warnings wise on the on the either for the next twenty four hours or later in the week we should keep an eye out for? Look, the one to keep an eye out for is the rainfall and the storms this afternoon. No warnings out there at the moment, but just be aware that there is a risk and keep an eye out. We might be issuing some some warnings um, as the afternoon and evening progress. Brian, thanks very much for that. Not a problem. Brian McPherson there, senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology. It's eighteen to one. Here on the country, are some of your texts. We've been talking about farmer protests today, particularly in Europe, but there are sort of other elements from different parts of the world, including in Australia already, talking about if there's a wider thing going on here we should be looking at and focusing on this year. Here's some of your thoughts coming in. Uh, Was I think a lot of country people are sick to death of politicians like Bowen and Plibersek playing God and hurting farmers and country people in general, says this text. Another one saying, farmers, beware. They've done the to the logging industry in time. It will be agriculture. Uh, Francis in Kagania South says, quite simply, problems are right across Australia. Health, housing, distance education, Indigenous people, farmers, we simply don't have and haven't had for decades a true leader and visionary. Will someone please step forward, says Francis as well. Uh, Welcome back. This is a hot topic. I love farming but can't take any more being screwed. We must have a floor price on cattle sales says another text message as well. And John says it's ideological politics that's driving the whole carbon nonsense, in John's words, uh, which is driving Western economies into the ground. Farmers in the EU exist in a world of government regulation in which real market signals cannot penetrate. It's no surprise they've had enough. The population has to know agriculture's underpinned all civilizations for the last 12,000 years, says John in Harrow. A lot of texts coming in. Keep them coming. We'll get to as many as we can. Zero four six seven eight four two seven double two. And Rod and uh, Rob, sorry, in Chilton, twenty two degrees and bucketing down. Says Rob. Rob, thanks very much for the update there. The radar looks like there is a fair bit of action your way. Let's talk water now, though, but in a very different way. Let's talk water in relation to. Almonds in particular. The Lower Murray is a horticultural food bowl that for decades has been known for its vineyards, citrus and stone fruit orchards. But over the last two decades, a new crop has come to dominate the landscape and it has big implications for the river's limited water supplies, as Elsie Kennedy reports. In 2022, as a global glut of wine sent wine grape prices plummeting, grape grower Brett Rosenzweig made the decision to pull out his vineyards in the South Australian Riverland and expand his almond plantings. Mr Rosenzweig's family has grown wine grapes for three generations, but he's now just one of many farmers turning to almonds to secure their futures, which is sparking remarkable growth in an industry that barely existed 20 years ago. So I already had some almond trees, which I planted in 2018 as part of a diversification strategy. And with the downturn in wine grape pricing, 
um, I made a snap decision to pull out some Shiraz and plant some more almonds. The growing popularity of almonds has driven the Lower Murray to become the world's second largest almond producing region outside of California and brought in billions of dollars of revenue. Almonds are now Australia's most valuable horticultural export. But the switch to almonds comes with a catch. In addition to being the Lower Murray's largest horticultural crop by area, almonds are also the most water-intensive. For Mr Rosenzweig, the investment in almonds was a simple business decision. You know, the first plus, uh, I'd have to say, for almonds is that, um, you know, they're food. Um, so, in theory, that should make it a little bit easier to sell. Almonds are a more valuable crop than wine grapes, and demand for the nuts is expected to grow. The pricing is not, it's not the best at the moment. It's not um, at any historical highs, but I think there's some prospects for it to, to trend upwards over the next couple of years. Optimism in the demand for almonds has been behind big investments by some of Australia's biggest agribusinesses. In 2021, almonds officially overtook wine grapes as the largest crop on Australia's biggest river. There are now more than 45,000 hectares, or 22,000 Melbourne cricket grounds, growing along the Lower Murray, from Barma in northern Victoria to South Australia's Murray lands. And since 2021, another 1,890 hectares of the trees have been planted. That's more than wine grapes and citrus combined. Almonds use more water than other irrigated crops in the Lower Murray. Independent analysis by Victorian researchers shows that almonds require nearly 7,000 litres of water to produce a single kilogram of shelled nut. By comparison, one kilogram of grapes needs about 740 litres of water to grow. But because almonds are more valuable than wine grapes, growers can afford to spend more on water. Even so, Mr Rosenzweig says accessing enough water to grow his crop is one of his biggest concerns. I don't have all of my water entitlement that I need. So on an annual basis, I need to go in and trade water. So that cost, I guess, is one consideration for the business. And obviously, if we go to dry times, then the trend for temporary water pricing is normally upwards. So then I have to decide, OK, how much am I going to buy? But longer term, the, the risk is just physically being able to get water down the river at the time that all irrigators need it when we've got restrictions like the Barma choke. For permanent crops like almond trees, limited water availability presents a real challenge. To stay alive, the trees need regular water. If the pumps turn off during drought, the trees die. As temperatures heat up due to climate change, storms are expected to become more intense. But overall, average rainfall is expected to decline, which means water will become more scarce in the Murray-Darling Basin. In particularly dry years, there's a risk there'll be no temporary water available for sale. It's almost certain that the water availability will decline across the southern basin. That's CSIRO Senior Principal Research Scientist David Post. He says climate models are anticipating a 20% drop in water availability in the Murray-Darling Basin by 2060. What's happening is that the, the Hadley Spell, which is the, the ridge of high pressure, which extends across Australia, is moving further southwards and intensifying. And what that's doing is driving cold fronts off the, the normally sweep through the southern MDB, tend to be missing the southern MDB. So it's drying, particularly drying in winter. And most of the runoff is generated across the southern MDB in winter, so we're almost certain that there'll be a reduction in winter rainfall across the southern Murray-Darling Basin, and consequently runoff and, and water availability also will decline. In 2020, after two decades of steady increases in permanent plantings in the Murray-Darling Basin, ABARES calculated water requirements were at or even over capacity. They calculated, based on the additional plantings of almonds that were in the pipeline at that time, this is 2020, that there was just barely enough water to maintain 
horticultural plantings in dry years. And that would be potentially then, of course, making less water available for other agricultural users, in, particularly in dry years. Australian Almond Board Chief Executive Tim Jackson says investing in almonds makes sense. Well, almonds still stack up as a business case far better than most. The uncertainty around the Murray-Darling Basin Plan and water buybacks has thrown a spanner in that works. But up until that point, you're talking about a product that traditionally has a, a premium price and is highly mechanised, so there's no seasonal labour requirements like there are with crops that need to be hand-picked. And you don't waste anything. Everything you harvest, you actually get a return for. So you're not just picking the best and cleanest and, and brightest fruit. You're picking everything and you're getting a return against it. So when you add up all those things, it ticks a lot of boxes as far as a business case from a horticultural point of view. Mr Jackson says the almond industry is investing in research to become more water efficient and make use not just of almond nuts, but also almond hulls and shells, which have traditionally been considered as waste, but are now being used as biochar, stock feed and even to generate electricity. Big agribusinesses certainly aren't showing much sign of slowing down their investments. Investment fund GoFarm is in the process of developing about 5,000 hectares of almond orchards at Katunga in Victoria and near Griffith in New South Wales Riverina. And Australian Farming Services, a company which is backed by a US investment fund, is investing $27.5 million in an almond processing plant near the Murray River town of Swan Hill, which will process nuts exclusively for export. Yeah, our, our thesis around almonds remains really strong. There's huge demand for its in China and India, which are you know, two of the biggest populations and growing in terms of their middle class uh, and their, their purchasing power continues to rise. So we, we remain very positive about I mean, agriculture in general, but specifically almonds. That's Australian Farming Services Managing Director David Armstrong. Australian Farming Services has 4,500 hectares of almonds under cultivation. And like Mr Rosenzweig, the company doesn't own permanent water licences. So that means each year it goes to the water market to buy, lease and trade water. Mr Armstrong says he is concerned about water availability and he's expecting water prices to rise. But due to the high value of almonds compared to other crops, he expects to be able to afford to continue watering his crop, while growers of other commodities might not be able to. The price of water will become huge. There's no doubt about it. The next issue becomes the physical availability of water and then it becomes an issue of other crops stopping to use water in that kind of event and the water become available to crops that do want it and can continue to afford to pay the prices that then become applicable. It, it's not going to be a pretty scenario and, and those are things that we try and plan for but um, you know, it, it's a market and the, and the price will dictate where that water moves when it becomes scarce. In a bid to rein in new farms competing for an increasingly limited water supply, the Australian Almond Board is calling on New South Wales and South Australia to follow Victoria's lead and introduce a moratorium on issuing water use licences for new developments in the Lower Murray. A spokesperson for the South Australian Government said the state was not considering imposing a moratorium, but was continuing to monitor irrigation development. A spokesperson for the New South Wales Government said the state would not be imposing a moratorium on new horticultural developments. And this means that most of the water demand is also from Victorian and South Australian water users, and we believe the focus is best placed on the locations with highest demand, the spokesperson said. That's Elsie Kennedy with that report from Mildura. Eliza Balaj and Angus McIntosh also contributed to that story. You're listening to The Country Hour. It is 7 to 1 right now, which means we're heading towards the end of the show, which means only one thing on this show. 
few markets to get through, a few of your texts coming up as well, but we'll start with the cattle, shall we, to find out what's happening at cattle markets. We've got to pack them first. G'day, Brendan Fletcher. G'day, Warwick. Numbers decreased to 1,250. That's 40 fewer with the usual buyers operating in a mixed market. Quality was good with all weights and grades represented. The larger trade offering eased up to 15 cents. Grown steers sold firm. Bullocks lifted 10. Heavy Frisian manufacturing steers eased 6. The better finished crossbreds gained 5. Cows sold from firm to 5 cents easier with processors loading cows for an estimated 4.70 to 5.41 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Heavy bulls eased 5. Vealers sold from 2.82 to 3.60. Yearling trade steers 3.05 to 3.75. The heifer portion 2.68 to 3.28. Grown steers 300 to 3.25. Bullocks 3.13 to 3.28. Heavy Frisian steers 2.36 to 2.87. Crossbreds 2.45 to 3.16. Most light and medium weight cows, 192 to 240. Heavyweights, 220 to 285. Heavy bulls, 210 to 260. This is Brendan Fletcher reporting for MLA. Thanks very much for that, Brendan. We'll go to Mortlake Cattle now, and Chris Agnew has the details for us. Take it away, Chris. Thanks, Warwick. Agents yarded 2,900 head at Mortlake, an increase of 650 to last week's offering. It was an excellent offering of all prime cattle over all categories, with a small tail of crossbreds in the trade cattle section. The grown cattle and bullocks displayed good weight, and there was plenty of manufacturing steers still available. The cow offering was of exceptional quality where there was very good mixture of beef bred cows as well as dairy breads. All the regular processes were active in a market that was fully firm over most most sections. However, the good milk vealers, quality driven, were 5 to 10 cents per kilo dearer. This week's offering of vealers, they made between 2.95 and topped out at 3.52. Trade steers and heifers making between 280 and 318 cents. Grown cattle topped at 325, and the manufacturing steers sold up to 278. This is an interim report as trade cattle are still yet to finish and the cows are still yet to be sold. At Mortlake, this is Chris Agnew reporting for MLA. Thanks very much for that, Chris. Uh, last in the cattle run for today is Leanne Dax in New South Wales at Wagga Wagga. Uh, good afternoon, Leanne. Good afternoon. The Wagga cattle sale continued its impressive run across some of the feeder steer categories in a much bigger yarding of 5,800. More feedlots entered the fray and dominated the sale over most categories. An extra few feedlot buyers helped lift prices 12 cents for steers 400 to 500 kilo. The bulk of the well-bred steers selling at 335 to 375. Lightweight feeder steers topped at 385 to average 1220. Trade cattle under 500 kilo are limited. A few heifers selling at three dollars to three twenty. There have been some excellent lines of feeder heifers sold with prices firm to four easier. Medium weights making two ninety to three forty five. Heavy cattle prices have softened ten to twenty cents with processors not willing to chase the market. Heavy steers and bullocks selling at two ninety to three twenty seven. Heavy feeder steers are making two ninety five to three seventy two. A big group of processors are all keen for a share of the eleven hundred cows with prices unchanged to a shade dear for planar types. Heavy cows selling at two seventy to 294. I'm Leanne Ducks for MLA. Thank you very much for that, Leanne. Let's move on to the sheep and lambs. Now, Jenny Kelly has those details for you from Bendigo today. Take it away, Jenny. 
Good afternoon. Erratic sale here today with prices coming off by 10 to $20 over a lot of lambs, although there was some exceptions. Some of the best nuggety shaped trade lambs still sold firm, as did some of the best export lambs that weren't overly big. There was a lot more weight today in the export run, and what was evident is buyers were reluctant to go over about $250 per head regardless of weight, and the heaviest lambs today were up around 38-40 kilos carcass weight. Just two pens of export lambs sold over $260 to a top of $264. Most 30 kilo plus lambs from $206 to $245. The average still hovering around $700, cents, but there was sales down to around $660 cents a kilo. All the other trade lamb categories averaged under 7 bucks today, most tracking between $660 and $690. Cents. Less store lamb competition and light lambs were cheaper, better frame types $80 to $130. Sheep sale also lost 10 to $20 and sometimes more on the heaviest ewes as the market was generally dragged back under $100 per head. Crossbred ewes 75 to $97. Light and trade sheep did hold up better. Jenny Kelly for MLA. Thanks very much for that, Jenny. Just before we go, some more of your thoughts on farmer protests around the world. Here they are. Harry says, I was with the protests in Europe. I think farmers across the world have just had a gutful of the governments and are sick of being treated like second-rate citizens. We, we are called murderers and environmental vandals, but you have a 10-year-old boy make a vegan joke and there's an uproar. No wonder they protest, says Harry. This one says, Warwick woke governments... Uh, around the world have uh, gotten to power by promising everything, uh, everything which is an economic disaster. So they then rip off small businesses, including farmers. And so please give me a government to tell us how it is. And and this text as well saying, I wish David Johinke and the NFF were just as vocal about the previous government's poor policies and lack of action. It looks very partisan at the moment, says Joel. There, some of the thoughts from you on the farmer protests around the world, how it relates to us. It's a conversation we'll continue. You can always get in contact with us. Uh, countryhour at abc.net.au if you want to send me an email. Countryhour at abc.net.au. Would love you to tell us uh, your thoughts on that topic or on anything you think we should be talking about in 2024 or somewhere where you think we should go for a broadcast. I am open to all of it. It's great to be back. Would love to get on the road and bring the country out to a place near you and have a chat to you about what it is we do and how we do it, how you think we can do it better. Country out at abc.net.au to send me an email with those thoughts. That's it for us today. It's coming up to one o'clock. I hope you have a great afternoon.